0: The Flora Grica, which stands open at Ferdinand Bauer's magnificent illustration of an Arum Dioscorides, Next door in the uh in Genius exhibition in bro- in both printed and painted form is a work. That deserves superlatives. It was expensive. It was one of the most expensive books produced in the 18th century and almost certainly the most expensive flora ever produced. In 1830, its subscribers paid £620 for a copy, about 20 times the annual wage for a, a labourer in England at the time. It was so expensive that, in fact, when the British Museum demanded its free copy, as was its right under the um, deposit agreement with the stationer's company it resulted in a landmark legal case which decided that the work was too fine to be regarded as a normal printed book and the British Museum lost the case it's extremely rare it's so rare in fact that its existence was even doubted in the early 19th century and botanists traveled far and wide to consult a copy there are only 25 uh, uh, copies in existence of the first edition and these were sent out in 10 volumes over a period of 30 years to their subscribers I think though that we should reserve our superlatives for the work to, uh, to describe the magnificent illustrations that it contains painted with astonishing beauty and accuracy by Ferdinand Bauer, a painter whose name is known largely to the natural sciences but who may have been the greatest botanical painter to have lived. The Floric was the legacy of the third professor of botany at Oxford, John Sibthorp. Sibthorp commissioned and funded both of two exhibitions to the Greece and the eastern Mediterranean in 1786 and 1794 and he also paid for much of the subsequent pin- printing of the book. Following in the footsteps of the great French naturalist Joseph Piton de Tournefort, who was commissioned by Louis XIV to study the flora of the Aegean. Sibthorpe made his expeditions to the Levant to make a a comprehensive study of its flora, those two eventually become the Flora Graeca, published almost 45 years after his death. Landing in Greece in 1786, Sibthorpe and his team were early tourists to the area, much of which was still under the control of the Ottoman Empire. They arrived long before the attractions of Greece and the Orient became popular as destinations for the Grand Tour and many years before Lord Byron and Lord Elgin. Stephen Harris, who's the current curator of the Oxford Herbarius, pointed out that Sibthorp's expeditions were absolutely fundamental to the opening up of, the, of Greece and the Mediterranean to both natural history researchers and also to artists who were to pursue the Grand Tour. Because although Sibthor didn't live to see the Florogreca in print, he ensured his own legacy by ensuring that it was printed exactly according to his wishes. But I'm not a botanist, and I'm, uh, I'm not a specialist in rare books. What I want to talk to you about this afternoon is colour. Now, colour became something of a fascination for both scientists and artists during the 18th century. And according to natural colour with accuracy, became an absolute obsession throughout the century that's echoed in the quality and accuracy in Bauer's own paintings. The level of scientific accuracy in his work is unprecedented, and especially so when one looks at the peculiar painting technique that he used. Because Bauer was travelling from place to place quickly, often under quite difficult circumstances, it's very unlikely that he was able to carry the painting materials that he required, even more unlikely that he would find the time space to stop and mix and grind his pigments into watercolor paint which he most, almost certainly would have done himself having no assistant on the expedition. power's method of working therefore was to collect specimens in the field make simple pencil sketches to record the basic form of the plant and then record the crucial color information simply by uh, annotating his sketches with a sequence of numbers you can see here These numbers presumably refer to a colour chart, which, if it ever existed, is now lost. Of course, this type of thing was not unknown to travelling artists at the time, and most artists use some kind of systematic shorthand for recording colour before working up their drawings into large-scale watercolours when they return from their expeditions. However, this had never been carried out to the extent of unsophistication that we observe in Bauer's work. Returned to Oxford from Greece in 1787, Bower used his colour code to paint to almost 1,000 botanical and zoological watercolours in the space of only seven years with an astonishing degree of colour accuracy. And we know almost nothing about Bower the person. There are a few known letters by him, there's only one letter relating to the Sid expedition and even that simply complains his salary. We don't really know what he looked like or much about the way he worked, but the research that we're carrying out right here at the Conservation Research Department in the Bodleian, I hope, will go some way in elucidating Bauer's working methods and materials, giving us much more of an insight into his own particular genius. We do know that Bauer and his two brothers, Franz and Joseph, were talented artists from a young age. Born in Felsberg in Liechtenstein. Which was then part of austria their father was a, uh, was a court painter to the princes although uh, the elder Bauer died when the, when the three brothers were very young all three brothers were apprenticed at a very young age ferdinand only at 15 to the noted naturalist and physician norbert buccius in felsberg buccius was a prior of a monastery in felsberg but also um, published a, a, a comprehensive florilegium of almost 3,000 botanical drawings which is now known as Codex Liechtenstein, uh, published in 1776. So Bucky has not only taught the three brothers but also commissioned them to work on the Codex and it's interesting to see that where his hand can be identified in the drawings for the Codex Liechtenstein, Ferdinand Bauer demonstrates exquisite attention to detail seen throughout his later work more importantly though some of the sketches by the brothers now at the natural history museum in vienna contain an elementary system of numerical codes of the similar type of ferdinand used in his flora codes and the codes used for a subsequent trip to australia in 1801 this sort of indicates that it may have been bookiest that was the source of this peculiar technique that's not really seen in any other artist's work we know that Franz and Ferdinand went to the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna, where they worked for the famed naturalist Nicholas von Jacquin. Sibthorpe was introduced to Bauer at this point around 1786 and impressed by his work, he immediately commissioned him to accompany him in his expedition to Greece. Franz Bauer left two years later to come to London and became the official draftsman to Joseph Banks at the Kew Botanic Gardens, where he remained until his death. Despite its impressive scope, the Florogranche is not considered to be a comprehensive work. Following closely the spirit of Linnaeus, Sibthorpe knew that his botanical endeavour had to ultimately convey accurate visual information as a tool for both the generation and exchange of knowledge. In this spirit, he stipulated in his will that only specimens that were directly observed by himself and Bauer were to be published in the final publication. This is very important study in of the 18th century, it was frequently proclaimed by artists and publishers alike that their work was taken directly from nature. Artists and publishers appended their drawings and prints, often with the term ad vivum, or one of its cognates, au or al vivo, or painting from the life. And they'd done this since the 1540s. But by the 18th century, exploration across the globe had brought back rare and exotic species, often highly coloured. And it seems that It was almost compulsory to include some kind of reference, or perhaps a disclaimer, to one's subscribers of the fact that the illustrations were truly taken directly from nature. Certainly Mark Catesby made sure to mention it in his preface to the Natural History of Carolina, Florida and the Bahamas in 1731, claiming that the plants that he drew were drawn fresh and just gathered, even to the point of angering his subscribers of the length that he took on uh, making sure his colours were correct. It was the 16th century naturalist, Aldrovandi, who was perhaps the first to conceive scientific illustration as a separate discipline. Aldrovandi also hinted at the fact that certain kinds of images could supplant access to the object itself, saying, those who wish to paint plants naturally need not only to be practical artists, but must moreover have the fresh plant picked within the hour before them. These proclamations imply that illustrations of natural history were considered themselves bearers of truth and accuracy. They tell us about the importance of transmitting visual information with fidelity, what material this could take and what its limitations were, and of course, what role the artists had in the transmission of this knowledge. The editors of the flora certainly ensured that this attention to detail extended to ensuring the colour fidelity of the hand coloured engravings for the publication. And this is something that was commonly overlooked at the time. The cost of hand colouring copper plate engravings would have typically fallen to the printmaker. And of course, hiring professional painters would have been prohibitively expensive. For that reason, amateur painters were often used, often women and often children. And the result of this was that in correspondence between publishers and printers, there was a great deal of complaining about the poor quality of the colouring and how uh how little it resembled the original drawings Bauer, in fact peti- petitioned to engrave his own plates for the flora greca but in fact james edward smith who was the first editor of the of the, of the uh, first seven volumes engaged the services of james sowerby who was a well-established botanical illustrator and engraver in his own right Sowerby paid particular attention to the accurate replication of Bauer's original colours and employed members of his own workshop to carry out the colouring at quite a lot, at quite a lot of expense. It was no small feat. There were 966 original drawings by Bauer that were reproduced in the Flora Greca and 30 copies printed. So Sowerby and his family would have had to produce almost 29,000 coloured plates for the final publication. Bower's colours are certainly impressively accurate to nature, but the accuracy of Sowerby's replication of Bower's originals is similarly impressive. And for the most part, they're almost indistinguishable from the originals. Look here at the example of uh, the bearded iris from both Bower's original on the left and Sowerby's print on the right, or at the two volumes displayed in the the uh, exhibition next door imagine that Sowerby had access to Bower's colour chart. There's certainly no reference to this in Sowerby's archive, although he certainly must have been aware of it, and it may well have influenced him in his own interest in colour theory. Sowerby in fact published his own pamphlet on his theory of colours in 1809, just after the printing of the first volume of the Flora Floribreica. Surely it's no coincidence that he formulated these theories while working on Bower's illustrations. What's interesting, however, about Bauer's preliminary drawings is the distinct lack of visual information on colour that they contain. His drawings are little more than quickly sketched outlines. In most cases, there's a complete lack of shading, no indication of form or texture or gloss or any other tactile qualities, and certainly no further written annotation regarding colour, shade, hue, intensity or saturation. Furthermore, the codes are rather chaotically and haphazardly applied. Nonetheless, Bauer's numerical system seems to be all that he required to achieve almost perfect colour fidelity in the replication of living species on the page. Living species that he observed up to five years before painting them. It's also remarkable that Bower's drawings, which were then carefully examined by the most eminent botanists of the day, contained few botanical errors, that they were frequently used throughout the 19th century in place of physical specimens to describe botanical types and that they remain a significant resource for the study of the flora of the eastern Mediterranean today. Recent experiments on visual colour perception and on colour recollection have shown us that our ability as humans to accurately replicate colour from our memory is in fact quite limited. So Bauer's visual memory for colour and his ability to reproduce it on the page with great accuracy is certainly remarkable. charts themselves and systems for ordering colour were nothing new. Isaac Newton, of course, as we know, had identified the prismatic spectrum of daylight in 1672 and a number of systems followed developing Newton's ideas. In the 18th century, however, it became a popular pastime. Throughout the century, both scientists and artists attempted to order, classify name and systematise colour in different ways. In 1725, Christopher Lebron, German engraver, invented the system of three-colour printing on the basis of which we still work today. Tobias Meyer, in 1755, developed Newton's original theory using mathematics and tried to understand the exact number of colours that the human eye could perceive. We now know this is something in the region of two million. In 1766, in England, Moses Harris produced the first colour wheel And in Austria in 1772, Ignaz Schiffermuller formulated a colour wheel based on four colours. Sometimes these systems were presented not just as a benefit to scientific knowledge, but also to industry and to art, that they could be used in a practical way to assist in the work of artists and craftsmen. Possibly the earliest example of this is Richard Waller's colour table, presented here on the right and given to the Royal Society, As a presentation in 1686. Waller was probably the first to present a colour system and a theory and suggest a practical use for it, suggesting that his chart could be used by both artists and scientists to describe objects observed in the real world. Maybe the most significant 18th century example is a colour chart created by the German botanist and entomologist Jakob Christian Schaffer. Schaffer proposed a system with the intention of standardising colour description for naturalists and artists. His system was based on describing colours simply by referring to real examples that could be found in the animal, vegetable and mineral realms of the natural world. The benefits of his system, he wrote, the first benefit will arise for those naturalists and other scholars who have neither the opportunity nor would they wish to spend the money to have the objects they describe drawn, engraved in copper and then hand coloured. These could express themselves by quickly and precisely referring to the colour charts without having to spend painstaking time naming and describing the colours. Colour swatches and Schaffer's chart referred directly to those colours observed in animals, insects, flowers, and minerals, and the accompanying text explained how one might replicate the colours using commonly available pigments. For example, Scheffers red number forty-one was described as the red of a woodpecker's breast, and was a combination of red lead, cochineal, and lead white. His red number forty is the red of a woodpecker's head, a combination of carmine, cinnabar, and Brazil wood lake. I'm very grateful to Sarah Loengard of the Cooper Union in New York, who's written extensively on the standardization of color in the 18th century. She points out, very sensibly, something that you all will have probably figured out already about this system, that Schaffer's system was based on the presumption that all colours in nature were constant and unchanging, something that he could certainly not guarantee. Despite noble attempts by Schaffer, Waller and others to produce systematised colour charts that would have practical use, there's virtually no evidence that they were ever really used by artists, craftsmen or naturalists in any significant way. They may have simply been considered irrelevant by artists, or the lack of consistency in the way one observes, memorises and reproduces colour may have meant that the systems were simply too unwieldy for practical usage. Certainly the limitations, and not to mention the variety of hue obtained from any given pigment, would have been an impediment to capturing colour in any meaningful way. Pliny had already pointed this out in the first century, suggesting that pictures could never capture the ever-changing natural world. Ferdinand Bauer and to a lesser extent his brother Franz appear to be the only significant natural history artists to have used this kind of color code in any practical way we know that numerical codes are found in early drawings by both Bowers from the 1770s however where Ferdinand seems to have continued to develop this original system of some 140 colors into one of at least 273 for the Flora Graeca and from then it's considerably more complex system of over a 1,000 colours for his expedition to Australia. Franz Bauer didn't appear to use the system after he came to London in 1780s, in the late 1780s. Ferdinand, of course, was a travelling artist. Franz was stationary in Kew, so much more in need of a shorthand than his brother. So it's likely that Franz simply didn't use the system for uh, because he didn't need whatever form they took Bauer's colour chart, For both the Florograeca and his later Australian paintings have been lost. How exactly he used them is unknown, but it's certain that the numerical codes definitively correspond to an ordered colour system. I'm showing you here is an earlier colour chart that was ostensibly used by both brothers in Vienna in 1770s and 1780s. This came to light in Madrid in the Madrid Botanic Gardens in 1997, discovered by Walter Lack, and it contains notes that appear to be inferred in Bauer's hand, and colour swatches that directly correlate with the numerical codes that are found in the Codex Liechtenstein. However, unlike Waller's and Schaffer's charts, there is no reference to the pigments that Bauer used to create each colour. An interesting side note to the chart is that it was unidentified for many years because it had been further annotated and amended into a considerably larger chart by the German naturalist Thaddeus hink who had probably met Franz Bauer while visiting von jackin in Vienna in 1786 and presumably acquired or was given the colour chart. As you can see, what we're looking at here is this is Bauer's original colour chart here of 140 colours, and around it is this uh, folio 16 uh, pages that hank created at some point in the 1780s or the 1790s. Shortly after meeting von Jackin, Hank was employed by the Spanish Crown to accompany Alessandro Mal- Malaspina on an expedition to the New World. But despite the apparent effort of creating such a huge system, almost 2,500 columns, it doesn't seem that Hanke or any of the artists on the Malaspina expedition actually used the system. Hanka was not an artist, and also his arrangement of colours is rather chaotic and hard to follow. His inscriptions were further written in Latin and German, and so most likely not understood by the Spanish-speaking illustrators on the expedition. Ultimately, Hanke's chart may have simply been little more than an academic exercise. Bower's <laughs> Florograica codes contain no other reference other than the numbers but we can start to understand the system simply by cross-referencing the numbers we have in the drawings with the areas that they correspond with in the paintings here for example is Baris iris germanicus again this time annotated with the colour codes from the drawing of the same specimen what I think jumps out here is that despite the specimen being highly complex and highly coloured the numerical codes are very basic for example the entirety of this petal in fact the entirety of the purple the the, the purple color in all of these petals is really only uh, described by one color 97 similarly in his uh, in his greens he seems to only refer to the number 130 there's a number of codes used for the yellow parts that seem to be a little more complex but in total there are only seven or eight individual codes for this painting Here's another example. This is a red dwarf events. S- similarly, when we annotate the numbers from this drawing of the painting, which is here, we can see that there's only really um, seven or eight codes to describe all the various shades of colour noted in this drawing. But this already gives us a great set of data to work with. And it gives us a good sense of how systematic Bowers codes were, at least. So comparing the drawings to the paintings, we can start to understand what his colour chart might have looked like. And we've only started to really do this, uh, and it's no easy task The Bowers' drawings were never labelled, um, and they were never catalogued. So it requires the eye of an experienced botanist to match the original drawings with the paintings. This huge task is only recently been started by Dr Stephen Harris, the Druce Curator of the Oxford Herbarium at the Plant Sciences Department in the University. But even just looking at five or six examples in this way, I've been able to determine that Bauer was using a systematic code that related to ranges of colour. You can see for example here on my, uh, on my table here on the left that his numbers started with black and grey and white, went through the reds, through the purples and pinks to the blues to the greens and then finally to the yellows and browns now this is really great news for us because it more or less corresponds with the codes that Bauer used for his australian expedition david maberly who's also an, uh, an authority on Bauer, and particularly on his australian uh, paintings uh, was able to crack the code used for that expedition in 2000 and uh, this is his uh, his findings here um, Obviously, Bauer uses a massively extended number of codes going up to uh, almost a thousand. But comparing the two systems, we can see that although Bauer was using a much uh, smaller system for the Flora Graica paintings, essentially the order is the same. The only real difference is that uh, blacks and greys appear at the end of the chart rather than interestingly this is not so with the earlier chart you can see that this system was slightly different um, he follows a similar pattern with the red um, which he numbers at the top from 1 to 40 followed by 40 shades of yellow and 40 shades of blue but then only 20 shades of green and 20 of uh, brown to black But certainly it's interesting to note that browns are still at the bottom of the chart and that his yellows are come before the blues rather than after the after the greens so certainly he's developing this uh the system over many many years and this is all very interesting but it doesn't tell us much about what materials bauer was using to replicate nature in such an accurate fashion we can start to think about this in a number of different ways. Artists' manuals, for example, and particularly artists' manuals on painting and watercolour, became increasingly popular during the 18th century, as watercolour began to be seen as a discipline in itself, particularly in landscape painting, and particularly for the education of young ladies. Carrington Bowes' The Art of Painting and Watercolour was published in 1786, and is quite a good example. It's largely a reproduction of material published in an earlier work from 1731, which again was probably a copy of something else uh, of an earlier work. But again, like many artists' manuals, it's useful in the fact that it lists recommended pigments that were available to artists at the time, and that were recommended for watercolour and miniature painting, as separate from those used for painting in oils. We can also look at early examples of watercolour boxes, the cake that we know today was invented by George Reeves, the London colourman, around about 1766. And sets of solid watercolours were certainly available from 1770. This is a, a Reeves set, on the left, um, from the Museum of London, that was purportedly taken on Captain Cook's first voyage in the 1770s by Isaac Smith from looking at these and from understanding what kinds of pigments were used, we can get a sense of what pigments were available to artists at the time. We might note that Bauer may well have had access to solid watercolours, but it's much more likely, given the fact that he seems to have learnt the art of botanical illustration as a 15-year-old apprentice in Liechtenstein in the 1770s, that he would have purchased his pigments dry from either an artist colourman or from an apothecary to give us some degree of quality control. Now, for our research here, we can use a number of analytical techniques to positively identify the pigments that Bauer used. Of course, typically it's impossible to remove a sample of pigment from a work of art, um, particularly a work of art on paper. So we have to find new and more creative ways to work uh, with technology. A fairly recent addition to the arsenal of techniques that we use for analysis of works of art is hyperspectral imaging. Now, this was developed for the military, of course, as these things often are, and the system is generally used uh, to identify different regions of interest that may look similar uh, to the eye. Of course, in the military, it's used for identifying Russian camouflage netting, but we prefer to use it for looking at pigments. Essentially, the system highlights in the spectral response of an object across the entire visible spectrum, sometimes into the infrared spectrum as well. Its great benefit is that we don't have to subjectively choose an area to sample as one does using more powerful analytical techniques such as FTIR, rama spectroscopy, X-ray fluorescence spectroscopy and so on. The hyperspec camera system captures an entire image of a painting in, uh, in a matter of minutes. In a, it, it works in a similar manner to a very high-end digital camera um, capturing the image on a digital sensor, but whereas a camera captures images in three layers, red, green and blue, as we know, um, or a multi-spectral system might capture a system in maybe seven or ten narrow bands of wavelengths across the spectrum, The system creates a cube of data, and in the case of the system that we have here at the Bodleian, this amounts to taking an image of just over 970 individual images at individual wavelengths, which are assembled uh, assembled as this giant, giant cube of data. The great thing about this is that we can effectively look at an entire painting or page of text as it might look under one wavelength of the spectrum, and this in turn allows us to obtain a very accurate spectrum of any point on the image itself down to just a single pixel what we can do then is ask the software to look for and visually map every point in the image that corresponds with the spectrum that's what i'm showing you here in this example from a 15th century illuminated manuscript at the national gallery in washington what you see here are a number of points where pigments have been positively identified, Um, and then these colours correspond to areas on this illuminated capital that correspond with the colours identified in the spectra. We call these regions of interest, and then these can be used to positively identify a pigment using using much more powerful techniques such as Raman spectroscopy. benefits to the system is that it can provide useful, visible data in minutes. Here we're looking at a set of watercolour references that I created using typical 18th century pigments, Um, which I've actually brought here today at the front that you can look at later. Now if we look at these samples under normal light, many of the colours will appear similar, but if we isolate one wavelength You can see that there are many differences. What I'm showing you here on the left is just um, alternating between the the samples, alternating between two wavelengths, 561 and 565 nanometers. What you see immediately is this pigment here, which is red lead, um, disappears when we get to (coughs) 565 nanometers in the gut. Really useful, and interesting way to start to identify that pigment on the right. Something similar is happening up here at 623 nanometers, where we can see pigments that are often quite similar, black uh, like cochineal carmine and alizarin crimson. Um, the alizarin crimson completely disappears at uh, 623 nanometers, so it's not it's not reflecting any wavelength, it's not reflecting that wavelength at all. But of course for absolute identification of pigments we need to use a powerful technique such as Raman spectroscopy. Now Raman spectroscopy enables us to identify artist pigments with a very high degree of accuracy based on comparison with pre-existing reference samples, such as the ones that I've just shown you. However, with traditional Raman there are a number of challenges and analysing Bower's watercolours presents a number of problems. Firstly, they're of large dimensions and they're bound in sizable volumes. Um, most Raman instruments are designed to be used on very small samples, and certainly not on large paintings, which often makes access to the areas we want to sample quite difficult. However, we've been extremely fortunate to be able to collaborate with both Durham and Northumbria universities and in particular Durham University has invented and assembled a portable Raman spectrometer which can be used on objects of any size and that's what you see here, this gantry packs up into a large suitcase you see here is the uh, is the Raman source, uh, the laser here and, uh, and simply attaches to a, to a computer so this can be used in objects of any dimensions which Allows us unequivocal, unequivocal identification of the pigments uh, in the watercolours to be made in situ. Now, we've only really begun to start looking at the pigments themselves under under uh, Raman and hyperspectral imaging, but we've already been able to identify several pigments that correspond with typical 18th century watercolour palettes. Here in this, you see here in this example that we found both red lead and massico, pigments that were both quite poisonous and difficult to work with, and were beginning to be replaced with newer pigments at the beginning of the 19th century. We might speculate from this that Bower was still using quite a traditional palette. Also identifying blue pigments in several of Bower's greens, particularly for stalks and leaves, we also might speculate, for example, that Bauer didn't use a great many pure green pigments for leaves and stems, preferring instead to use mixtures of blue and yellow. Louis might never be exactly sure how Bauer used his colour codes. The results of the work that we're doing here at the Bodleian will enable us to cross-reference numerical codes with pigments, and our intention is to create, at least partially, a historically accurate reproduction of Bauer's Florogreca colour chart. This, I believe, will go some way to understanding how Bauer was able to achieve such an impressive degree of fidelity and accuracy in his work, and ultimately, Give us a practical means by which his genius might be understood. Thank you.